Hello guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the Not The Top 20 podcast, the first since the season started. We'll be reviewing the opening weekend of the EFL. George Ellick is opposite me and slightly to the left. I'm Ali Maxwell. George, we spoke a lot last week, didn't we? And a ball hadn't even been kicked yet. Quite happy for it to be back? Yeah, really happy for it to be back. Um, Frustratingly, as is often the case on Saturdays in August, I was at a wedding in a church um, for the third year in a row for the, for the opening day. But uh, yeah, caught up now and uh, yeah, a Saturday not short of talking point. You're really at that sweet spot in terms of age at the moment where a lot of your mates getting married, yourself as well getting married towards the end of the season. Very exciting. Many congratulations on behalf of the listeners from myself. Yeah. Uh, and it does mean that you will miss a couple. I was at Luton Middlesbrough on Friday night. And what a way, what a night. Great great start to the campaign that at Kenilworth Road. It was my first time there. And I was with Colin Murray. Someone was very upset that I was cheating on you with uh, with Colin, George. But as Colin said, you get me Monday to Friday and he gets me on weekends. Uh, and we had a great time at Kenilworth Road. It's going to be one of those grounds that's sad to wave goodbye to, a bit like Griffin Park when they eventually move. And at the same time, you can absolutely see why they will move. And just a feast of football, that three all between Luton and Middlesbrough, uh, two managers taking charge of their first games as managers in Graham Jones and Jonathan Woodgate. It was loose. It lacked control. It was entertaining. There was mistakes passing out the back. There was mistakes from goalkeepers. There were a couple of screamers as well. It was a fantastic way to start the season. Um, We're not going to be able to talk about every game from opening weekend, guys. I'm sure you can understand that. Uh, How we're going to do today is by using the tried and tested winners and losers format. We've basically got four winners from each league uh, and a couple of losers. We don't want to be too negative uh, or, to be honest, overly positive after just 90 minutes of football, uh, which across almost all 72 teams was a, a, you know, a bit like that Luton game, muddled, frantic, a bit loose. So the other thing to say is don't worry too much if your team lost this weekend. Last season, Sheffield United and Luton both started with defeats. So don't get too concerned, but we are going to run through some winners and losers from opening You're weekend. you saying it was premature me ripping up my Brentford slip on, uh, on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. I think it was, mate. I think it was. How okay. many times out of a million do Brentford win a game based on the XG? That's what you're going to tell me later on, uh, or perhaps not. We will be touching on Brentford and that loss to Birmingham City and uh, uh, some wild transfer announcements that are sort of dropping as we record this. Uh, but also, George, an exciting sort of announcement of our own, isn't there? Coming midway through the podcast, which we've teased on Twitter. It's it's a new sponsorship partner for the Monday podcast and something that we're really excited about. And through this, we have our first guest of the season. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners who the guest is at the end of the championship section? I feel like it's similar to when big name managers go to clubs and suddenly get their hands on fantastic loan deals. Lampard at Derby-esque with, with Mason Mount and Harry Wilson. But we... <laughs> Um, have a partnership announcing today with The Athletic and straight away get our hands on, of course, Phil Hay, the man that any Leeds fan will treat as the Oracle, as the Messiah, as the man um, you know representing their club in the media. So I feel like yesterday he was unattainable for us. And yet just a day later, as soon as we go live with The Athletic, we're going to be chatting to Phil Hay. Really exciting. Yeah, we're going to run you through the details of our partnership with them in due course and talking to Phil Hay about Bielsa, about Victor Orta, about Kamar Roof, about their opening day victory against Bristol City. But let's start with uh, a winner from the Championship, George. Barnsley, their first game back at this level, having spent just one season back in League One under Daniel Stendhal. And 
while we are desperately not going to refer to our 1 to 24 predictions because it just seems stupid to do so this is the one time I'm, I'm going to say we, we were excited for championship fans to see this Barnsley side and while Fulham fans might not have enjoyed it I think everyone who watched the highlights would have seen exactly what we were talking about what a fantastic opening day performance yeah, it's one of those where, where you and I stood on Sky Sports News and said we, we thought Barnsley were the dark horses. We said on the preview podcast and the prediction podcast how excited we were about Barnsley. Why did we only put them like 17th? We should have put them like top 10 because they look fantastic as we expected. Um, you know, in Stendhal, they've got a manager who it's fast becoming obvious just how you know either good a tactician he is or just the whole machine at, at Barnsley is is very well oiled and... and uh, is looking very good indeed. You look at the two lineups of the two teams. Um, no denying the the strength of the, of the Fulham team on paper, um, not just on paper as well. I mean, a lot of that team um, have shown how good they were in the championship. That midfield trio returns of Johansson, McDonald, and Kearney after um, in the last season all being replaced, except for Kearney, all being replaced by supposed upgrades. Uh, but that midfield three was as good as we've really seen in terms of possession in possession a couple of years ago when they got promoted through the playoffs. Uh, we've got Mitrovic, who's the favourite for top goal scorer. Yeah, it's the the unheralded names who, who've come up. Trumps, Woodrow played very, very well in that number nine role. Mal- Malik Wilkes had a very lively debut uh, for Barnsley as well. Uh, the goal, of course, coming from, from Thomas, who last season was on loan at Coventry. These are all guys who are on the ascendancy. And mm. yeah, I think a few people would have been surprised to see this. I think certain fans who've got Barnsley coming up and their fixtures uh, in the next couple of weeks have probably got a bit of a different idea about how that game's going to go. And um, and the two centre-backs, the 21-year-olds who came in, looked absolutely brilliant straight away. Yeah, they did, didn't they? I'm going to be talking a lot, I'm sure we both will, about Bambo Diaby and Mads Joel Anderson. I don't know how you say his middle name, but that's how we're going for it. I think I'm just going to call them Bambo and Mads. Uh, and the Barnsley fans, I think it's fair to say, have taken to them very quickly, of course. Tough act to follow to replace Liam Lindsay and Ethan Pinnock. But in Bambo Diaby's physicality, dealing with Mitrovic very, very well, and, and with Mads Anderson providing uh, blocks on the line, last-ditch tackles, and, and, and a calm head in possession. Um, with Sibic at right back as well, who they signed from AFC Wimbledon. He had such a good second half of the campaign for Wimbledon, having come through their youth system. He looked right at home. And to get a clean sheet against the best attack in the league, uh, as as we were calling them on paper anyway, uh, was very, very impressive. I think there's, a, there's an extent to which this is a Barnsley team that, albeit with some departures over the summer, knows how to play under their manager, was composed and confident, hardworking, Uh, And on the flip side, Michael tweeted us with his Sunday scouting report. We got almost 100 of those to start the season. These are such valuable resources for us. You guys going to games or watching games on iFollow and telling us what you saw. It's a great way for everyone, the the whole community really, uh, to keep up to date and to to pick up on things before maybe the mainstream media would. Uh, Michael said Barnsley looked like the team with Premier League experience and Fulham with promotion jitters. It's no... It's nothing new, is it, for a, a relegated Premier League side to have a difficult start, uh, a bit of a, um, yeah, a bit of a, uh, a tough introduction or reintroduction to the league. But that's what Fulham had: lacklustre, toothless, weak. These were all words that were used as well. You mentioned McDonald and Johansson. I completely agree that in possession, still would expect these guys to be a, a good midfield three. But I remember watching Johansson in the playoffs for West Brom last season. 
and he was so slow and he could barely stop Grealish or McGinn, whoever wanted to drift past him. He could barely stop them and, and that's really not what you need when you've got Kearney also to cover when you've got that front three. So plenty of food for thought for Scott Parker, but what a fantastic start for, for Barnsley. I, th- I think on that point though, you look at that Fulham team that did so well and under Jokanovic and they were very, very possession heavy. Um, the edge possession here, which you'd expect but they went 1-0 down after the first 15 minutes, so it was hardly dominant. You'd normally expect after going behind a team like that would really exert pressure, but only 315 passes completed to Barnsley's 261, both fairly low in terms of pass quality. You'd probably expect that because of Barnsley's high-pressing mentality. Um, but as you say, I think Johansson in a team that's going to dominate with the, with the ball, so it doesn't really have to do that. Defensive work would be okay, but you look at Barnsley's team, there isn't really a defensive midfielder in there. You've got McGeehan and Mowat playing behind uh, Barra. So they did a good job keeping Kearney quiet for the most part. We saw a couple of flashes of the of the Kearney that we know and that we love and that we missed for the last year. Um, but they did do a very good job. I mean, I, I was the one last season saying, I don't think McGeehan and Mowat as a midfield two is quite good enough defensively. Uh, and they've basically been been proving us wrong. They had the, you know, as, as a, proving you wrong, proving me wrong, I should say. <laughs> but you know, as a team, they are defensively so so strong. Although they play at such a speed and tempo and committing men forward that there are going to be games where it doesn't quite work and where I think they will concede a fair few goals if a team can execute a bit better. But they caught Fulham at the right time. Look, another big winner of the weekend. Uh, was uh, a West London team in QPR who had a much better opening weekend than West London rivals Fulham and, of course, Brentford. George, this was an away win at Stoke. They were big underdogs for this game. We were expecting Stoke to start the season really well and ready to play Nathan Jones football. Um, but it was a great start to the Mark Warburton era. Uh, era? Yeah, <laughs> a great start to the Mark Warburton era for uh, for QPR who looked who just looked like they wanted to get the job done and did. Yeah, we've said in, in, pre-season, in pre-season, I suppose it was our pre-season as well, um, that a very easy, almost the best thing that could have happened to him last season was him having a shocking last couple of months of the campaign because the player who was linked to moves to Manchester United six months ago was suddenly not hot property in any way. And I think what we saw then was a refreshed, a very easy showing that he is still one of the best attacking ball-playing midfielders or attacking midfielders in the league because he, I mean, the goal aside, I mean, the goal is absolutely superb. I mean, the the ease with which he glides past the man and the confidence with which he strokes home the finish for the second goal is just pure quality. And so, when you make something look that easy, it's just because your quality and your technique is a cut above um, the opposition. But generally, in terms of play, um, he was just fantastic, uh, creating chances, very neat in possession and having, I, I think having him playing as he was there and maybe a bit more of the the creative onus being on him after Freeman leaving I I just can't see them struggling if he's going to continue that kind of Mm. form because he is just as I say a cut above yeah bright I say Samuel was really impressive in this one as well Um, winger who's who's obviously been on the books at QPR for ages has seen plenty of loan time in the EFL uh, and, and on his day uh, has great sort of dribbling ability and was a, a real threat and Stoke struggled to deal with him I think it's fair to say from a Stoke point of view again we, we don't want to overreact <clears throat> and I know that there's a section of Stoke fans that have done and a good section of Stoke fans who aren't overreacting to one game of course the goal when it came so early was just a disastrous bit of goalkeeping from Jack Butlin to be honest um, but Sam, who was at the game as a neutral, said that they were they were really poor and that he can't see the diamond working with that personnel. And that touches on something we said in pre-season, um, which was 
some of the players, some of the notable players, don't seem to have an obvious fit in this team. Uh, and if the likes of Vokes and Afobe are not going to fire up front, then things can get quite turgid quite quickly, I think, in the uh, in the diamond system. I note that Afobe was booed off, which is fairly grim. But let's end on a positive for QPR. Um, Easy's goal, fantastic. I say Samuel, a big positive. But the, the solidity, I think, and the... Well, the, 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 yeah, the solidity given by Nathan Cameron and Luke Amos uh, sitting in front of the defence, I think, was crucial for QPR in this game. Um, Hall and Barbe at centre-back, I think over 46 games, we're still going to have some concerns about them uh, as a centre-back pairing. Uh, and I know QPR fans do too, but with Cameron uh, and with Amos in front, they are, they're going to get some good protection there. Uh, Charlton Athletic, another one of the promoted teams from League One who just had... Basically, the dream start going away to Blackburn uh, and winning 2-1. This was just a, um, a well-executed win, I think, is, is, is what it sounded like. Blackburn had all of the ball, but couldn't really create anything. And Charlton, when they did have the ball, used it much better. Um, you know, of, of course, Blackburn's only goal was, was that comedy own goal. Uh, as the right-back headed it into the keeper's head and back into his net. Um, but... Only one player in this Charlton team that wasn't involved last season or wasn't at the club last season, which is interesting. We talked about the players they lost, uh, but it was 10 out of 11 players who had at least been at the club last year. Just Tom Lockyer coming in at the back of the new lot. So this is a midfield of Lapsley, Forster, Kasky and Prattley, uh, all contributing to a, to a great away win. So just a very happy start to the season for, for, for Charlton. Yeah, massively. I mean, you look at the people that came on, Oshelaja and Gallagher, two new signings came off the bench. You'd expect them to come in fairly soon. Um, and, you know, I'd still be pretty concerned if I was a Charlton fan having that midfield three. Uh, but it couldn't have gone better here. Um, as you say, they were unlucky to concede the goal they did because it was a free cone goal um, after the clearance from, from, from Dykesteel. So Your favourite Lyle Taylor poaching a winner? Yeah, it was an interesting finish. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the worst backheeled winners you're going to see where I don't think he really knew what was going on or if he really middled it, but the touch certainly took it, took it in. So, I mean, I was, I was surprised. You know, I said it on the Thursday show. I thought that this was going to be a game um, that Blackburn would win given their home form and given the, the squad um, available to, to Lee Boyer. But yet again, Lee Boyer proves everyone wrong and fairly soon we're going to have to just... I mean, I think we, we gave him the due credit... He, for last season but probably thought this was going to be a bit beyond him but more results like that and it seems like they really have got themselves a bit of a, a bit of a managerial start underwhelming start for, for Blackburn fans and their team uh, Peter who tweeted is saying that Tony Mowbray is completely at this stage of course with a couple of days still to go transfer wise seems to have neglected the defensive issues they had last season and, and I suppose that's evidenced by uh, allowing a Charlton side who didn't have much of the ball to create still two or three clear-cut chances uh, and there's a, a feeling that some of Mowbray's favourites, shall we say, or, or some underperforming favourites even, uh, are, are getting too much game time from him. Elliot Bennett played right back. Uh, Amari Bell at left backs were always flattered to deceive in a, in a Blackburn shirt. And Charlie Mulgrew, while he scores a lot of goals, potentially not always a, a, a net positive uh, on the defensive end. We've got a loser now, George, and it's uh, it's Brentford. I don't know how you want to go through this, but let's start with the obvious. <laughs> Losing to a team in Birmingham who registered 0.01 XG. Well, interestingly, and this, 
I mean, it's it's quite funny it's happened today, but I was reading a piece on The Athletic and this isn't even our, even our contractual obligation, this one. This is just genuinely interesting, I think, that uh, written by Michael Cox all about Manchester City last season under, under Pep Guardiola, saying that Guardiola said their best performance of the season was when they beat Bournemouth 1-0 because it was the only match across the whole thing. So it's 360 matches in a season in the Premier League. And it was the only time, occasion, where a team has only, hasn't had a shot on or off target. Wow. Across the whole thing, so that's 720 teams, and yet that was Birmingham's only shot at all. Was a header from 22 yards that that flies into the top right hand corner, and I think that, in my opinion, because I like goals that are slightly different, I think that should be up there for goal of the season. Christian now. Pedersen, more like bloody good header, son. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but it was peak Brentford, was think- it? Are you saying that Thomas Frank will be deep down happy with the defensive performance, and you know they created in terms of XG, let's say, about 1.4, 1.5, which isn't loads, but... It's not loads, but I mean, I was surprised to see that figure because even, I mean, you, you see the Watkins chance and you see the Marcondes first chance mm. and the Marcondes second chance. I'd have thought those three would add up to, to you know, well over one. Yeah. They're three big chances. Um, it so, seemed like in the second half, they ran out of ideas. All those chances came in the first yeah. half and that would have been a, a frustrating part of that and, game. I mean, there's issues, of course, which seems to happen every season with Brentford where Neil Morpé wasn't in the squad. You've got the persistent uh, speculation about Ben Rama and about Ollie Watkins. Ollie Watkins, of course, did play. Um, but you've you just got to hope for their sake that they can get those players back very quickly or replace them effectively. We still haven't seen some of their attacking signings come into the team yet. Of course, we had one, another one announced today on a five-year deal, which suggests that he's probably going to be pretty incredible. Um, You're talking about Brian Mbuemo. They've yeah. also added Joel Valencia a few days ago, another attacking player. Exactly. And Drew Yearwood, they've just announced as we record as well. And, and I'm sure even you know even the most positive Birmingham fan will be happy just to take the, take the three points and run because, um, yeah, I mean, they're certainly a loser. They've, they've, they've hosted one of the less fancy teams in the league at home on opening day and, and lost 1-0 but uh, as ever with Brentford definitely causes for optimism going forward what's the what's the like musical conspiracy theory where you if you play a certain track backwards you get a, a hidden message that was like aliens or something like that because basically what the <laughs> listeners of a Birmingham bent will be confused about is why we haven't given credit to their team. But if you play George's, I just said that <laughs> the goal should be one of the goals of the season. Okay. So that's. I mean, there's not really much else to say. All I'm saying is, if you play George's answer backwards, you'll hear him say, "Well done, Pep Clotet." Um, <laughs> no, we're going to wait uh, another few games to truly judge this Birmingham side. They obviously just had that one shot, but held firm for the most part at the back uh, to get a, um, a very, very impressive opening day win at uh, a team that we expect to be very strong at home just in terms of Mopai, Watkins, Ben Rama it's difficult at this time of recording because none of them have been confirmed to have left I think at this stage we expect Mopai will go to Brighton that Ben Rama might well go to Aston Villa uh, and at the moment I think Watkins looks like he will stay but in Embuemo in Valencia We've got some players that we're looking forward to seeing, that's for sure. And links to a, uh, is it Basel striker as well today? Yes, to? yeah, he's been linked with um, a, um, a couple of championship teams over the last few weeks, yeah. so I hope we get to see him. Uh, and I'll learn how to pronounce his surname when we do. Exactly. Um, look, elsewhere in the championship, I think there's definitely teams to say, well done for getting an opening day win, but generally we want to wait and see a bit more of some teams before we go into deep on the pod. So good wins, for example, for Millwall against Preston. 
Um, with Mahoney crossing for Wallace, that's going to be a, a great combination on either side of their midfield this season. Um, Sheffield Wednesday, of course, beating Reading. Really impressive performance, uh, especially from their free transfer signing, Kadeem Harris. And you wonder if Lee Bullen might get the job permanently at some point. Swansea beating Hull, of course, with a goal from forgotten man Borja Baston. Uh, and Wigan and Cardiff playing out a really entertaining game. Uh, Wigan winning that one 3-2. Not a great start for Neil Warnock and his boys. Um, but just Wigan's old guard, potentially underrated guard, the likes of Jacobs and the likes of Evans and potentially Windass as well, who, to be fair, we have always rated, uh, all stepping up really big and getting a, a good opening day win. And then you had West Brom beating Forrest. feel a bit bad for the goalkeeper there. Uh, he wasn't the only one to push a shot in. Uh, on the weekend, and I, I genuinely don't think there was anything he could have done about the cross. I think it's one of those ones that probably would have gone over every goalkeeper because it, it just had that wicked traje- trajectory. Uh, and Birmingham at Brentford, of course, no doubt we'll get to all of you guys in the next few weeks. George, we're not going to talk about Huddersfield and Derby either because they haven't played yet, but you've just seen some sensational EFL news. Well, rumour, I think. I mean, but from reputable sources that, uh, that Wayne Rooney... Um, is being linked to a return to English football with Derby County as a player coach. I mean, you do feel like Derby have a, you know, their, um, what they're looking for in, in their employees, whether it's players or, or staff, is just being really good at football, which is probably quite a good way for a, for a club to operate. <laughs> but uh, I would absolutely love for in a couple of weeks us to be talking about Wayne Rooney knock, knocking in goals for Philippe Cocu's Derby County. I don't even know what position he's meant to play anymore, but I'm all for it. And... Um, big winners of the weekend uh, and they played on Sunday and they played at Ashton Gate against Bristol City and it's Leeds United and the reason we've saved it till this point is we were lucky enough to speak to the famous Phil Hay the Leeds guru and a man who knows all about the club but also someone who has today joined The Athletic to be their Leeds United correspondent he's already got some fantastic articles on site which we both read and enjoyed earlier one about Bielsa heading into his second season as Leeds manager and what's gone on over the summer but also a fascinating insight into their head of recruitment their director of football Victor Orta some of his methods and his history uh, and, and what it's like basically running Leeds United so if you want to check those articles out out before we talk to Phil that could be a good shout and if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 pod then you can sign up to a free trial uh, that will then give you 50% off if you would like to continue after the trials expired uh, but just in the short term you can read these articles so that you know what Phil is talking about two fantastic articles and he was kind enough to give us his time to discuss them and to discuss Leeds and to discuss The Athletic. So, Phil, thanks very much for joining us now and on what is a very exciting day for, for everyone involved with, of course, the launch of The Athletic. Um, straight away, three articles up on site um, from yourself. So, firstly, before we talk about Leeds, and uh, we'll ask you the questions you've been asked a million times on Twitter today, um, just tell us a little bit about you know, why you've joined The Athletic after what was you know, an incredible time at the Yorkshire Evening Post. It was a long run for me at the Evening Post. I mean... That, that old joke about getting less for murder, it was it was 15 years in total um, and, and 13 years as Leeds United correspondent, so somewhere around about 800 competitive games. And it was a, it was an amazing adventure and, and, and it's an absolutely great job. And, and I think that the, the best part of it is that you've got a club to cover who are permanently newsworthy, permanently busy, always things going on there. Half the time it's crises, um, but, but 
a club who, no matter which division they're in and, and, and what is going on, kind of catch the attention not only of the, the sort of own fan base, but of people right across the country. They are a, a club that, that the general public just seem to be fascinated in, whether they like Leeds or, or not. And I'm well aware that a lot, lot of people who, who don't. But I think the big appeal of the Athletic, and, and, and this I think has been borne out in, in the content that's on there today on, on the launch day, it was the ability and the, and the freedom to start getting into longer pieces, to start getting into much more long-form journalism, the, the freedom to to spend your time on articles that, that certainly in, in the regional press, I, I didn't particularly have the time to do. Um, it was also the ambition of it, the, the other journalists that they were, were going um, going after and and the fact that you're part of a team that's got some absolutely top-level writers in it. It's, a, it's an amazing group that they've put together. And I think all of us um, could see the appeal of it. I think all of us could see that it was a different model, subs- subscription model, where you're asking people to pay for the content, but where you're, you're trying to promise them and, and devote yourself to, to giving them content that they're going to feel is genuinely worth the money. Um, and I think all of us could see in the clubs we were covering the potential to dig out more interesting stories, more in-depth stories, to get a little bit deeper into um, the coverage than than we had before, and you can see from the people who signed up that an awful lot of people, that an awful lot of us, were sold on the concept and and were sold on what the athletic were were suggesting and and what they were planning. Um, and I have to say, looking at the content that's been supplied by by some of my colleagues today, I'm I'm hugely impressed. Phil, it sounds like the perfect job. You're basically being asked to write less, um, but write better stuff. And uh, um, that is it's hugely exciting. And your articles on site range from uh, in-depth piece on Victor Orta, the, the director of football, sporting director, and also a big piece on Marcelo Bielsa, staying for, for a second season. Um, at what point in the summer did you know that Bielsa was going to stay? How, how up in the air was it after the playoff semi-final defeat against Derby? Well, to take you back to the summer when he first joined, um, I, I was in touch with, with some, of his, some of his people in Argentina, people who were very close to him, and, and they were very much given the impression that it would be one year for Bielsa unless the club got promoted, um, in which case he, he would stay for a second season and, and take them into the Premier League. But I think over the course of, of nine months, um, the, the city kind of the city engaged him in a big way. The club engaged him in a big way. I think, I think he fell in love with it in, in a way that he, he tends to be. He's a bit of a romantic as BLC. He, he still is still obsessed with his first club, Newell's Old Boys. He, he put all the money into the development of their training ground last year. Funded a, a massive new project over there that's kind of modernised um, Newell's to a point where where they can kind of seriously compete. And when it came to the end of the season, I think it was a, a case for him of feeling that and. And in a lot of ways, there's a bit of martyrdom with, with Bielsa in this sense, but feeling that he'd let the city down to an extent because they hadn't been promoted. I think he felt like it was a job half done because they hadn't been promoted. And I think he felt that he'd be not only walking out on the club, but walking out on players who'd worked very hard for him, and walking out on staff who'd worked very hard for him, and, and walking out on supporters who'd invested an awful lot in him emotionally, and who, I have to say, almost to a man, but certainly en masse, um, wanted him to stay. There was a moment the day after the defeat to Derby when the players went to Thorpe Arch on on the Thursday morning the next day to say their goodbyes just for the summer to clear out the lockers as they do, the usual stuff before the summer starts. Um, Bielsa's staff are very emotional. There was a lot going on that made people think that he was about to go. And and I think it was a general atmosphere that made people think it was almost like goodbye from Bielsa. But I would have said that within about 24, 48 hours of that, it was pretty clear that, that he was going to commit and that he was minded to commit. He went met with Angus Kinnear 
um, the following afternoon, had a long chat with him, met with Victor Otter over the weekend. And from that point, they got discussing the, the changes to the training ground that Bielsa wanted, the, the kind of plans for the summer. And it didn't take long before it was clear that he was minded to stay, Leeds were minded to keep him. And it was all a case of just meeting in the middle. But again, having spoken to people who know him, I think they just felt that it was a it was a job half finished. It was it was unfinished business as as they put it. Um and, and quite honestly, he's a competitive guy, extremely competitive guy who who wants to make this happen. And I think when all when all said and done, the defeat to Derby in May seriously hurt. I mean, I read your article today on The Athletic, Unfinished Business, how fan affection and crunching the numbers saw Bielsa stay and target promotion. There's one story in particular from it which really stood out about Bielsa bumping into a group of fans in Weatherby where he lives, them asking him about transfer activity and him proceeding to write down his expected squad for the coming season, including certain players like um, like Helder, uh, Helder Costa, who hadn't even signed yet, um, not including Pontus Janssen, who hadn't even left yet. So from the from the outside looking in as a neutral and as maybe a Leeds fan, it has seemed at times like this summer has been quite quite hectic, quite slapdash. But that suggests that the meticulous planning that goes on behind the scenes is anything but. Well, you would say that in to the credit they got the the business or a lot of the business done fairly early. They had um, Ben White in from from Brighton, Jack Harrison over from Manchester City, and and, and Helder Costa, who's been the marquee signing so far. Um, in from Wolves, not quite for the start of pre-season, but not far off either. And and those were three names that that Bielsa had had put down as as definites. You know, must must sign really. And, and and Costa was hard work. That was a difficult one to get done with Wolves and Mendes. But I mean, he badgered the club constantly about that. Badgered Radrizani, and and I think they certainly felt the pressure to to get that one done. Bielsa is a strange animal in in the sense of the squad that he likes to run with. He, he he doesn't like surplus players. He hates the idea of having players at the training ground or players in his squad who are either not playing or, or have very little chance of playing. He doesn't see the merit of that. I think he sees it as a hindrance and and you know potential trouble in the background when you have have guys who who aren't involved. So he does run with a very small squad and and he does tend to cope by by moving players up from the under twenty threes, which is what he did repeatedly last season and. I think there are a lot of people in England who would question that strategy and, and would doubt it, would wonder whether or not you're going to get caught short at some point. And, and needless to say, you, you can look at this, the results last season and see a you know a, a kind of defining drop off in the last four games where Leeds were needed ten points in the last four games to to get promoted. Um, ultimately, lost to Wigan, lost to Brentford, drew with Villa, uh, and lost away at Ipswich. Um, but I, I don't think you can blame that on the size of the squad. I do think it came down to the nerve of the players in the end. I think they, I think the nerve did fail them when, when it was absolutely on the line. And to a large degree, you could say the same about the second leg of the derby playoff when it was all there um, with, you know, 44 minutes played and, and halftime coming when, when Kiko Casilla made that mistake. So business hasn't been rife this summer, but Leeds being Leeds, they do struggle to hold on to top players and, and they do, and this goes back many years, they've always had an issue with keeping players, best players under contract um, and under contract for a long period of time. So Kamar Roof's on the verge of joining Anderlecht as we speak. I think that will go through very shortly, which obviously leaves a, a hole up front and, and a hole that needs filled. And if they can do it, they'll try and get Ryan Kent in from Liverpool. Um, but I think a couple of weeks ago, having felt that if Roof stayed and Calvin Phillips stayed, the bulk of their work was done. All of a sudden, they definitely need some business done in the last few days. Um, with no emergency loan market and anything else, I don't think they can afford to run through to January with the squad exactly as it is. So 
there will be pressure on, despite the fact that really most of the players that Bielsa wanted were in the door. You know, not not quite straight away, but but not far off. Phil, uh, he obviously doesn't see positions in the traditional English sense, uh, or or in, or in the, really the sense of most football fans across the world. When you not say that Ryan Ryan Kent is the is the sort of expected replacement for for Kamar Roof. That's always going to raise eyebrows amongst the fan base and our own as well, because Kent, from what we've seen when he's had loans in the Championship, very much a, a, a tricky winger, a skillful winger. Is there, I mean, there's going to be concern that there isn't a second number nine to support Patrick Bamford. What would you say, knowing Bielsa uh, better than anyone, really, uh, in response to that? Well, what you what you said is is absolutely right. He isn't conventional when it comes to giving players um, set positions, and the reason that they won't take another centre back or he won't take another centre back, even though I think most managers in the league would say that that he needs one or they would want one if they had this squad, is because he thinks Berardi can play there. He thinks Luke Ayling can play there. He, th- he thinks Calvin Phillips can move back there from um, his, his defensive midfield role. Um, and likewise with Ryan Kent, from speaking to people, because Kent is not a like-for-like swap with, with Kamar Roof, or he certainly doesn't look at it face value. But I think Bielsa feels that he can make, a, a, if not a number nine out of him, I think he feels he can make a goal-scoring number 10 out of him. And, and likewise with Jack Harrison as well, I, I think he feels that he could play inside if he needed to. He doesn't need to play out wide. But then having said that, and having having seen Harrison look good yesterday down at Bristol City, you, you question the, the wisdom of of trying to move him out of the area that's that's clearly his best, I think. Um, and again, you, you've got somebody in Pablo Hernandez who I always think when he plays inside, plays in the middle, gives you that proper number 10 in that role. Um, they had Matthias Cleek and they had um, Adam Forshaw there yesterday and they did a great job on Bristol City at, at closing them down, giving them no space to breathe. But I wouldn't have said that either of them stand out as obvious 10s and you do need that little bit of craft, particularly given the the huge amount of possession that, that Leeds have and the fact that teams tend to back up against them and, and tend to play in a fairly compact style. But that's what he'll do. And and, and the thing about Bielsa is if he, if he sets his mind on this, it's the way he'll go. Um, and I, I constantly said to people last season, you can argue the toss about needing another centre-back and I personally felt they were light in that area um, and even even this summer when Ben White came in you still felt that you were really talking about three out-and-out centre-backs in Janssen, Liam Cooper Ben White and obviously Janssen has now gone to Brentford but there's literally no point in arguing the toss with Bielsa about this because it, it's what he does and it's what he's decided and when he decides like this he, he just goes with his own mind and I have to say as much as the season went wrong in the end last season they did finish on 83 points and I think an awful lot of what he did last season was absolutely vindicated by the performances and, and by the results and I think I think there's a strong argument and, and, and good reason for understanding why he feels that they're not far away from that little bit of improvement that will get them over the line I mean, let's talk about the game over the weekend against Bristol City because there's probably no one in the world who's more aware of fan feeling at Leeds United given the fact that they hang on pretty much your every word, Phil. But um, fair to say that some quarters uh, weren't particularly optimistic given very, uh, the lack of depth. Oh, very much so. Um, I think I don't think it was necessarily doubt about Bielsa, although I th- I think if you look at his record, there is that kind of second season syndrome with him where it all tends to come good first time round or, or you know, the, the promising aspects tend to shine through in his first season. And then it has at Bilbao and at, at uh, Marseille 
but difficult for different reasons, it has to be said, but difficult after his first season. And it really didn't make it to the end of his first season. There were, there were more complications there. So I guess that there is always that underlying question of will everybody hit the wall? Will people, will the, the whole Bielsa model drop off a cliff on the basis that everybody's been worked so hard and pushed so hard? Although from what I gather, he has eased off on them slightly this summer. It hasn't been quite as as brutally intense as it was 12 months ago. But but the players understand him better now. They know him better. So I think it's been easier to, to get into the work quickly. And, and there hasn't needed to be so much schooling in the way that there was first time round when they were completely fresh to, to his philosophy um, and everything else. But yeah, I, I think people were concerned about the, the number of transfers they've been, they were concerned about the amount that the the squad had changed. I mean, my my view was that looking at the division, it, it seems more even than ever this year. I, I'm struggling to pick out anybody who stands out as as the outstanding team. I, I think West Brom under Billich will be really strong. I think they're a, a big threat. But even them, it's hard to know. They were very hit and miss last season. It was up and down. You, you felt that they should have done better than than they did. And I think there was that little bit of apprehension about. Our lead's going to start well because you you got the feeling that they really had to they really had to to get back into the rhythm, and the thing that really struck me down at Bristol City yesterday was that watching that performance was like watching so many of the best performances on the Bielsa last season, but it looked so fresh and it looked so new and it wasn't it, even though it was familiar it did look like you were watching something that made you sit up and say wow this is really really impressive. Um, and I think to be into that stride and into that rhythm so quickly will will be massive in terms of the players' confidence. And I thought there was a huge gulf between them and Bristol City yesterday. And Lee Johnson said the same afterwards. He held his hands up and said, "I can't lie, we were we were completely outplayed." And and I don't think Ashton Gate is an easy fixture at all. I think that was a difficult fixture for the first weekend live on on a Sunday afternoon. And it has to be said that they absolutely cruised it, with the exception of about ten minutes towards the end of the game. Yeah, and you I mean you talk about um, the players that have come in that, that did come in, and I think Ben White was one who immediately stood out very, very quickly. And, and you mentioned um, in your piece about about Victor Orta when Plan A is sat here ready to sign. How can you have a Plan B? You mentioned the I think it's over six thousand players that they've scouted and over two thousand um, youth team players. So I mean it's no fluke presumably that this guy Ben White's come in, who people know very little about, and immediately looks like a, a bit of a Rolls Royce at the back. No, not at all. They've been they've been watching him for eighteen months ever since he played against them and um in an FA Cup game, he was on loan at Newport County. And I mean, that game was a disaster for Leeds. They lost the game. Samuel Saez was sent off for spitting and, and got a six-game ban. But the only um, saving grace of it was the fact that they, they got their eyes on, on White and from there on monitored him really, really closely. And I've been speaking to quite a few people today who, on the back of yesterday's performance, who know him and have, have worked with him before. And everybody's saying the same thing, that he's incredibly mature for, for his age very switched on, um, extremely talented in terms of you know technical ability. And you saw that yesterday, really good feet, um, great on the ball, but confident on the ball as well, not nervous about taking it, which I think is absolutely crucial in, in a Bielsa team. And, and crucial as well with somebody like Kiko Casilla behind him in goal, who... You know, is 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 a bit madcap at times, and I think a bit heart attack inducing. But Bielsa loves the tempo that he gets from um, Casilla. He loves the distribution. What he needs is defenders who are able to take the ball quickly and and to take it safely. And and White certainly looks like that. And interestingly, I mean, he he was he was an option for Bielsa last summer, and Bielsa declined just because he didn't think he needed an extra centre back. But he's somebody who Bielsa has liked for a long, long time, and and he was absolutely on the list from the start of the summer. He was someone who he was desperate to get, and I think. You know, when things came to a head with Pontus Janssen, I, I think because Ben White was there and because Bielsa felt so much faith in him, 
he wasn't concerned about Jansen going. He, he wasn't worried. He, he was happy for that to happen. Um, and and all in all, on the basis of one game, and I, I'm always loath to to jump to judgment too quickly, but he does look like a, a terrific prospect. Phil, uh, what a start to the season for Leeds at Ashton Gate yesterday. Big news of your own today and plenty of Leeds transfer news, no doubt, to come in the next few days. Uh, a real coup for us to, to be able to get you on the podcast, talking Leeds as well. So thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to reading every word you write this season for The Athletic, worth the um, w- w- worth the sign-up fee alone. So thank you so I much for so. joining us. I hope so. Thanks very much, Phyllis. So, Jules, just off the back of that chat with Phil Hay, we'll just clear up to the listeners how our own partnership with The Athletic came about, why we're excited about it and and what it's going to look like. We're really excited to be working with The Athletic. I think it's going to be a bit of a game changer in the industry. Um, If you're someone who appreciates and likes reading written football content, then um, I think subscribing is pretty much uh, a must. They've got a world-class team of writers from across the industry, um, household names that we've all enjoyed reading over the past few years. Um, they're completely ad-free as well, which means that you know you're, you're paying for this so that um, you can read the content because there are no ads on site or on the app either. And there's a commitment from them to cover the EFL. Um, five clubs have their own special reporters in the championship, and we will also be helping them cover the EFL as well. So keep your eyes peeled, as it may not just be podcasts you're you're hearing from us. We could have some written content, and we'd love to hear from you. How would you like to see us expand into written content? What sort of thing would you like to see? General interest stuff from the EFL. That's what the Athletic are, are committed to providing, uh, and using our code, the Athletic uk forward slash ntt20 visit that url uh, and from there you'll get a free trial so you can check out everything on site um, there's pieces features on on sunderland on ipswich as well already on the site and, and plenty more to come so you can start your free trial to check that out and it also gives you 50 percent off going forward if you decide to continue so uh, we will be talking about it each week some of the best written content will form part of our discussions uh, but we hope that you in the meantime enjoy the athletic uh, and if you do please do visit using theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 george winners and losers in league one from opening weekend the sort of most eye-catching result i think came at london road where peterborough were beaten 3-1 by fleetwood and there's no need to, to go around bashing Peterborough, is there? You kind of preempted this uh, in in your, let's not call it a rant, but in your discussion of Posh on our 1-24 to um, podcast. But, I mean, it brought out a wry smile of sorts to me that Posh were the team whose transfer business everyone was talking about and Fleet would go there, who were more under the radar impressive recruitment uh, and three summer signings scored their three goals in a 3-1 win. Yeah, and it was deserved as well. Um, as, uh, I mean, one of the few things that Darren McAntony's tweeted in the last three months that I agreed with was him on Saturday evening saying that, you know, it's early days and, and they'll, they'll improve because I'm sure they will. And that's kind of the point about the hype here is that this is a new team with a lot of new players, some of which are stepping up to this level for the first time, some of which haven't played football for a while. And Fleetwood were very, very good last season, given it was Joey Barton's first season in management. They improved as the season went on. They've recruited very well again. Talk that Ched Evans will be going back there as well in the next few days. So it was a really tough game for Peterborough and they came unstuck against the better team. So a long way to go. But but as we may be suggested, um, I don't think that this Peterborough squad is is shoulders head and shoulders better than, than others in the league. I think it's a, it's a top seven or eight squad and that's 
at, yeah, at best. Marcus Madison came on and provided an assist for Tony. But apart from that, from the sounds of things, Fleetwood really, really happy sitting on that lead that they got early. And you can see something that we, we floated uh, beforehand. The fact that they'd lost Chad Evans looked like a, a big loss in terms of goal scoring. But we did talk about how with him and Madden, they did have quite, two quite samey strikers, two number nines, you'd say, playing in a 4-4-2 last season. And they were an inconsistent team. But I get the feeling that with now a 4-5-1 and that midfield, which includes Rossiter and Paul Coots, who is excellent on debut, uh, and Biggins as well, but they've got other central midfield options, um, they'll be a, a bit more solid, I suppose, at the back. And that certainly played out. I note that they also had three men booked for time-wasting. Uh, so Joey Barton uh, certainly keeping this team in his image, shall we say. Uh, another big winner of the weekend, of course, was Shrewsbury. Um, Portsmouth, one of the favourites for the titles, top of the table in our predicted league table. And it's clear that they still need to get better at breaking down well-structured, low-block teams. But that is uh, something that we noted last season as well, something that they need to work on uh, and something that hopefully new signings such as Harness and Marquis can help with. But Shrews, we banged on all summer about that back three of Roshan Williams, Ebanks, Landell. And Aaron Pierre, there they were, defending resolutely to keep Pompey at bay. A, a really positive start to the season. George for Shrewsbury, who didn't have it particularly easy last campaign. No, it's a massive result for them. Um, as with all these results where it's won by a 35-yard wonder strike, um, you know, from uh, from Giles, you've got to acknowledge that and, and realise that's probably not going to happen every week. But at the same time, you know, the, the team who... Many fancy for the title turn up, and when they looked at the fixture list, they were probably pretty gutted that that was what the uh, the fixture computer had drawn them against, and they, they keep a clean sheet and get the one 0 win. So for Sam Ricketts, who it, it's it's a big couple of months for him now. If if we were to to pick out five or six managers who need to have a good August and September, he would definitely be one of them. Um, so for, for them to get off the mark with three points for for a new signing, 19 year old as well to score a 30 35 yard winner against him on opening day what a boost that's going to provide to him and to the club so it's of all the winners and losers we're going to talk about today I'd probably say that Shrewsbury are the ones who, who profit the most from, from getting their season off to a flyer Great start for Lincoln uh, as they um, sort of set sail in League One shall we say they beat Accrington pretty comfortably at home uh, and the key here I think to note was Lincoln in control and had the bulk of possession so much discussed about their summer recruitment and what that meant. Technical players, small players, dare I say, um, like Joe Morrell on loan from Bristol City, like George Grant, like Jack Payne. Uh, all three played, all three impressed and helped Lincoln play some really good football. And Accrington really had no answer. It could have been more than, than two uh, from the sounds of things. And Akinde came off the bench to score a penalty as well. So uh, business as usual. Tyler Walker, of course, uh, started ahead of Akinde, which is a, another sign of things to come, I think, because Walker's strengths are slightly at odds with, with Akinde's strengths, where Akinde is a, a very, very good target man. Uh, Walker probably less suited to that sort of thing and again indicative of a bit of a change of, of style for Lincoln and someone uh, a team rather that we're keeping a very close eye on a great day out for Blackpool uh, 11,500 fans at Bloomfield Road that was the second highest attendance in League One on the weekend when you realise that the average gate last season was just 5,500 um, that is almost double in fact it's more than double that so really good vibes 
on the Blackpool fan front, but also on the pitch, things are looking very positive. Uh, Simon Grayson started with a 2-0 win against Bristol Rovers. Curtis Tilt, how they're still clinging on to him, I don't know, because he, he's so easily a championship defender. He was excellent. Uh, Sully Kaikai looked fantastic on debut and will surely get better. So really good vibes for, for Blackpool. And then we couldn't decide whether uh, it was Tramir who was a loser or whether Rochdale, who beat them 3-2, were the winners. Let's do them together, I'd argue George. both. Uh, a rude awakening, though, for, for Tramir Rovers at this level. Yeah, massively. We talk about the the, um, the fixture computer, and I think Tramir would have been delighted to see they had Rochdale at home, one of the one of the favourites, one of the fancy teams relegation. But uh, it didn't turn out that way. The three two scoreline flatters them, three 0 down with just a couple of minutes to go at home. Um, they'll be happy they got those goals because otherwise life after James Norwood would have looked very tricky indeed. So to get those two goals was important. But uh, yeah, a, a difficult start for them. Rochdale um, and, and yeah, Brian Barry Murphy are putting those like me who tip them to struggle um, in our place for the time being uh, with a with a very good performance and the evergreen uh, Ian Henderson is still doing his stuff so it's, it's it's a fantastic start for them it's I'd say they, they probably edge it in terms of winners and losers because for Tranmere they're aware that this is going to be a long season and they're aware that the consolidation is, is the key and, and one defeat on opening day doesn't change much whereas for Rochdale I think fans can now Look at this season with a little bit more optimism. A couple of things of note in terms of Rochdale. One is a real commitment to playing the ball out of the back, uh, you know, on the deck, which is maybe not the perception of, of Rochdale, maybe not something that we expected, but something that they started to do more and more under Keith Hill and obviously weren't getting the results. And Barry Murphy clearly trying to continue with that. Uh, it did get them in trouble, of course, at one point. They were not the only team to concede either a goal or some clear-cut chances because of uh, sort of rustiness, let's say, when it came to passing it out the back. And then Ian Henderson, who is the top goal scorer in League One as far back as my records go, which is about 2002. No one has scored more goals than him at this level. And his second was a sumptuous lob. So if you haven't watched the highlights on Quest... Go and watch that Henderson's goal, one of the tastiest of the day, if not the most spectacular. And then, George, we've got a, a loser that you wanted to add here, um, a team that we, we don't talk much about in uh, in Sunderland. Why why we got them in the in the loser list? Well, I, they didn't lose, of course. They drew with with Oxford United. It's obviously because of the you know the fan reaction, I guess, to the performance. I frustratingly couldn't be there, but um, it seems like any pre-season optimism has, has kind of gone out the window straight away with what is, can only be described as the same old, same old, despite new personnel, personnel out on the pitch, um, a lack of ideas, creative ideas, an inability to create chances for the strikers, um, boring football, is, it's, it's what we've seen before here. So we've mentioned a million times over the summer how important for Jack Ross it is that he gets the season un- off to a good start. I don't think he has very much time and I think that performances are almost more important here than results. I think if they had gone against Oxford and dominated the game and been unlucky in a 1-0 defeat, fans would have been less peeved with what's come about. Uh, The goal was a penalty. They were very, very lucky not to go 2-0 down as well because of a um, a disallowed Rob Dickey goal, which seems very, very harsh indeed. So, yeah, I think Sunderland fans, this isn't a case again where where we're going to be at odds with each other because I think Sunderland fans listening to this will agree that 
that Saturday was not a good start and things have to improve very, very quickly or, or, or they may well be looking for a new manager. You wrote a, a preview piece in the programme uh, for this game. Mm. What did you put down as your score prediction? I got it wrong because I said that it would be a one-all draw with Oxford's uh, sorry, with Sunderland deserving all three points, and I think that it may have been the other way around. Still, one-one, not not a bad shout. It sounded like Rob Dickey was excellent in that game. Tarek Fossu as well, on his Oxford debut, playing very well. Of course, Carl Robinson got plenty out of him back at Charlton, and maybe he's the man to to do so again in League Two. Let's start with your favourite League Two team, from what I can tell uh, from pre-season and from now. Uh, you want to talk about Plymouth? Obvious winners in League Two on the weekend, 3-0 winners away at Crewe, who last season had such an impressive home record. Yeah, I think that's exactly why it's so important. They've gone, it, it feels like just a bit of a berry result, really. They've gone somewhere, they've scored goals freely, minimal fuss. Um, any concerns about the defence are, are probably, you know, you, you don't really have them anymore because they've, they've kept Really? Them. Just straight well, out? No, I in, still have them. I'm, I'm sure you do, but just generally, in terms <laughs> of thinking that they had a threadbare squad who... Um, uh, who, who are going to struggle to to not ship goals? I think isn't the case. Um, yeah, they've, they've you know, new signings getting on the on the score sheet. You can tell the three five two is working well when the left wing back is popping up to score two, to and score both from open play. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think f- from what I've seen in, in highlights and, and read from fans, the three 0 scoreline may be somewhat flattering, but um, no denying that the away team were the better team and deserved their win. So. And, and as ever, as, as we've seen, I mean, we're going to talk about Bradford later, we're going to talk about Scunthorpe, we're going to talk about um, Walsall. For these managers to get their first win under their belt is huge. Daryl Clark and, and Ryan Lowe have managed that, so um, they're off to, you know, they, they hit the ground running straight away in, in the new job. I enjoyed the Sunday scouting report uh, from this game that we were sent, which basically said, Crew, uh, it took us 25 or 30 minutes to cope or to get to grips with Plymouth's 3-5-2. And it's like, you played against Berry twice last season. Like, what, what, what did you expect? Um, but Mayer, again, looked like he was on song in that win for Plymouth. Uh, Swindon, a lot of people's dark horses for good things this season. In fact, so much so that I think by the time they kicked off, they probably can't be considered dark horses anymore. But we were certainly riding the, the Swindon horse, much uh, to your dismay. Uh, but they sort of did what we thought they would, two incredible counter-attacking goals the pace of of Isgrove and the skill of Woolery and the finishing of Yates um, but the key thing here as well was how solid they looked at the back in this game um, a, you know away at a Scunthorpe team who should have plenty of threats in theory still a lot of um, still a lot of notable players in that Scunthorpe squad so for Swindon to keep a, a clean sheet uh, and score two great goals on the counter-attack Jordan Lydon made his day before them was very very impressive sitting next to Michael Doughty in, in midfield. They look quite tasty. I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to ask you to talk about them. Um, but why not talk about the impressive weekend and the impressive showing and the emotional day, I suppose, at, at Leighton Orient? Because to to start a, a season, a return to the EFL under such circumstances, having lost your manager early in the summer, um, for Josh Wright to score the winner, who was Edinburgh's Final signing, uh, a great friend of Justin Edinburgh as well. Um, Edinburgh was at Josh Wright's wedding last season. He played his best football under Edinburgh at Gillingham. Uh, Their families were friends. So for Wright to score the winning goal, uh, to celebrate by holding up a shirt, uh, commemorating Justin Edinburgh in front front of his friends and family in the stands was easily the best moment uh, of the EFL weekend, was just fantastic. And, And 
for the sense that we've got from some Orient fans that we've spoken to is that it was sort of doubly good because you needed this commemoration of, of an amazing man and an amazing manager. Now that they've got the win, uh, they look solid at the back. The passing was excellent. Possession-based style. They limited Cheltenham to absolutely nothing. Uh, I think the feeling is now they can move forward with confidence and they can move forward to sort of just not put anything behind them, but to move forward with the season now and, and, and sort of crack on in his legacy, which was a, a great day for them. Yeah, I'm sure I wasn't the only person on Saturday who had alerts on for, for that game who with no affinity towards at all towards the club um, was was pretty happy to see when it popped up saying they were one up uh, and seeing who the goal scorer was as well another winner of the weekend were Walsall you mentioned them there Daryl Clark getting his first win in charge and another away win this at Northampton Town who are fairly well fancied to start the season this is Daryl Clark's first game in charge of Walsall and he certainly said all the right things in a fan forum the other day He's a, an engaging character, as, as listeners of NTT20 Meets will know. But in terms of on the pitch, uh, George, we were told, well-drilled, quick to press and quick to break. That sounds like a, a, a Daryl Clark team, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It also sounds like the kind of team that every single manager in the EFL wants. So <laughs> uh, it's an easy thing to say. But, but again, I mean, it's just the perfect start after relegation, just to go to a team who you know, are ambitious this season, who will be quietly confident in the owner and the owner signings they've made? Uh, Keith Curl maybe quite loudly confident in the in the signings that he's made. Um, to go there to get an early goal with a new signing that you brought in from your club and James Clark as well. You, you know your, your your ally who you brought to the club uh, and then. To I wish he to was it his well. son. They've got the same name and everything. He really should be, but he isn't. <laughs> I think Daryl would have to have been about fourteen for that to be the case. <laughs> so um, maybe relieved that that he isn't. But. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a big, as I say, it's a big result for them and it just gets them. If you think about you know, at 2.55 on Saturday, Walsall, Plymouth and Scunthorpe, all in the same boat, all with a new manager, there's something to prove, in a new squad, in a new division. And for Walsall and, and Plymouth to get their away wins compared to, to Scunthorpe, who've been defeated 2-0 at home, suddenly those clubs just seem in very, very different places to me. And that's only after 90 minutes of the season. On the flip side, won't have been a great day for, for the Northampton fans. So ex so excited for their season to start. From what we saw, from what we've read, the signing of, of, ha of Harry Smith, who came in from Macclesfield, who is, as we know, about six foot five, proper target man. It, it basically sounded like they spent all day lumping it up to, to Harry Smith. And with Sadler and Clark and Dan Scar at the back for Walsall, it didn't sound like that had much impact. So already some... Food for thought for, for Keith Kerr with his new look Northampton team. I guess we should talk about Salford. They had their first game in the EFL live on Sky, of course, on Saturday lunchtime. They played against Stevenage. And I think that was a good thing in the end for Salford because Stevenage, I must say, were, were desperately disappointing. Uh, and maybe it remains to be seen that, that that's because of the, the strength of the opposition in Salford. But, you know, the form that they showed at the back end of last season in the, in the sort of 3-4-3 three, three shape, didn't really transpire at all. Um, Guthrie, who finished last season so well, uh, didn't really get any support. Uh, they, they just couldn't really create anything, Stevenage. But that speaks to an impressive debut, to be fair, from Salford in the EFL. They won 2-0. It was a comfortable 2-0 scoreline. Impressive performances from Richie Tao. Big summer signing for them. who looked like a class act to this level, um, driving them forward from the central midfield. But also the fullback, Scott Wiseman. Uh, and of course, Manny Diezere. Now, if you look at his name, that's not how you think it's pronounced. But 
we found a YouTube video of him saying it, and he says Diazare. So it's going to be the most mispronounced name in the EFL this season. But the big man, he got himself two goals. He's never scored more than four in a league campaign before. He's already got two. How many EFL goals does he have to score this season for you to sing Life by Desiree on the podcast? <laughs> Shall we say ten? That's it. He's already got two. Well, he's never scored more than four. It's I'm confident. Eight, eight more. But, but yeah, I'm very happy with that. I thought you were going to say 20 or 25. Oh, uh, no, 10. I'll do some, you know it doesn't take much for me to no, get, no, it's great. get singing. Uh, just on a point on Stevenage, um, back to being slightly serious, I'm really worried about them. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of alluded to it in the um, in the prediction pods where the, the data last season was, was really, really poor. And obviously when you keep the same manager um, who's undergone a, a whole season with, with kind of the XG data dropping off towards the back end, that sets off alarm bells straight away. You mentioned Curtis Guthrie, who has never really been prolific in his whole career, who went through a, a massive purple patch during during that, that spell. So the chances are that's going to be fairly unsustainable anyway. Um, and they were well and truly beaten here by Salford, who, as we've discussed before, you know, for, for all of the um, the coverage that they get and, and, and the kind of the circus that surrounds them, came up through the playoffs last season and weren't particularly convincing in doing so. Um, so for them to, to kind of just, just brush aside Stevenage, um, yeah, they're, they're a team that I think need to show something in the next few weeks or um, I think they're going to be fighting for their lives in League 2. Let's continue with your, your negative thoughts. One team that you wanted Story to... Story put... of my life. <laughs> one, thing that, one team that you wanted to put forward for a loser of the weekend, a bit like Sunderland, a team that didn't actually lose in, in Bradford. They drew 0-0 with Cambridge. Uh, I thought this one was a bit harsh, so you have to justify yourself here. Well... Favourites for promotion against third favourites relegation, um, first game of the season. I mean, as we've discussed, that Gary Boyer, we're giving him a bit of a free pass for last season. I think this this is the first game of the Gary Boyer era, era um, with his own squad playing against a team who um, I think still have a lot of recruiting to do and a lot of players to bring in. Uh, and they're playing against 10 men for half an hour of it as well. Um, of course, they, they were the better team on the day. Um, I think normally that game gets played a thousand times. They're going to come away with with the three points the way the game was set. But at the same time, they've drawn another blank. They've, it's been a, a pretty shocking two years for Bradford at Valley Parade. This was the opportunity to put that right, and um, and they failed to do so. Uh, it's it's a poor result against a poor team. There you go. Well, that's the end of the podcast, guys. So we've ended it on on a sombre note, I suppose, but hugely enjoyable hour spent in the company of George Ellick. Uh, with bonus Phil Hay, and I've been Ali Maxwell. And if you join us in the second half of the week, uh, we will have a betting show for you. Uh, We had a a fairly successful weekend, I must say, more so for me than for you. But as we know, it fluctuates, doesn't it, throughout the season. But some good picks, some less good picks, more of the same coming at the end of the week. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you have done and if you've enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared this podcast, either by a retweet Maybe a link on a forum. That's always good for us. If we've spoken about your team, a good way to reach new people. We're always looking to grow and to expand. So uh, your help is much appreciated. uh, But ultimately, we just want you to listen. So thanks for getting to this point and have a great week.